Uh, we began the book of Acts a few weeks ago. It's called Acts or Acts of the Apostles because it co- covers the timeline from the time that Jesus goes back to heaven for about the next 35 years, what the apostles did. And it gives kind of the, the highlights as, uh, as, uh, as, as it goes forward. But last week we began Acts chapter 3. Now Acts chapter 3 was probably about a year or so after Acts chapter 2, which was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we notice is that the crowd that was there on Pentecost, they're no longer there. They've gone home back to, to the places that they came from. And it's a very, very different audience. Now this week and last week and every week in the book of Acts is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? This is going to be a whirlwind study. We're going to highlight some things, but, but uh, we're just going to keep moving as we go. But last week I, I began by, by uh, saying, and I, and I think it's important to say this week, that if you grew up in church, there's a good chance you grew up in a certain denomination, a certain, certain church perspective, a genre of church, a, a certain camp. And what, what happens many times is that when you grow up in a church camp, a denomination, it really shapes your thinking about God, it shapes your thinking about the Bible, and, and what we tend to do, and it's not to our strength, but what we tend to do is we tend to look at other groups who love Jesus just like we do, but they tend to emphasize and focus in on other things. And because they're not like us, sometimes we, well, sometimes we make fun of them, and, and sometimes we discredit them. And uh, I think sometimes we, what we do is we throw the baby out with the bathwater, not stopping to say, what is it that we can learn from some other people who love the same Jesus that we love, but they're doing it a little bit differently than what we do. So in our genre of church, and it's true, uh, but when we look at the gospel, we tend to think of the gospel as that Jesus, who is God, came to the earth and he stepped into our place and he paid the price for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him now and for all eternity as we receive the free gift of salvation. That is all true. The question that we asked last week is, is salvation or what Jesus did for us, is it just about going to heaven or is there something else that God wants to do in our lives while we are here? So last week we began by looking at a few different verses, but I I wanted to, to just highlight a passage today that if you grew up in the church, you're very familiar with this verse. And it comes from Isaiah, and it talks about what Jesus did on the cross for us. Isaiah 53, there in your outline, and you want to underline a couple of things. It says, surely our griefs, and you want to underline that, he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. And you, you want to underline transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Underline that. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And you want to underline that. So when, when you read that, we all get that this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so when you read those words, you go, all right, well, transgressions and iniquities, we all get that. So that's the sins that we've done, and he came and he paid the price for that. But there's some other words that are there, and uh, I want to just highlight some of those. First of all, you'll notice that he says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And so what, what does griefs mean? Well, if you were to look that up in a Hebrew dictionary, that word specifically there in your outline means malady, uh, which just an illness, it means anxiety or calamity, but it's translated into English as disease, and you want to underline that, grief or sickness. And that's from a Strong's uh, Old Testament Bible Dictionary. 
But if you were to look at that in a, a very academic uh, Hebrew dictionary, for instance, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, uh, they look at that word and they say it just means one thing, and I put that there on your outline, it just means sickness. Does everybody see that? just means sickness. Now that's interesting because uh, when you look at that in a, that verse, in a literal translation, when it says this is what it's literally saying, so Young's literal translation would say it like this there in your outline, surely our sicknesses he has borne and our pains uh, he has carried them. And so uh, the word there literally means sickness. And then it says, it goes on, it says, by, by his scourging we are healed. And so the question is, is that just spiritually? Are we, just, are we spiritually healed? Or could it be that God wants to do something more? Well, that word healed there, healed there is rapha in the, in the Greek. It means to mend by stitching, uh, to cure. It's translated into English as cure or cause to heal, physician repair, or make whole. Now, be, because of that wording, part of the church, and many of us would come from that side of the church background camp, uh, they would look on and say, this passage is only talking about Jesus taking away our sins. And so God needs like four or five ways to say sins. The other side of the church would look on and they'd say, well, no, you have iniquities and, and, and that uh, transgressions, that's clearly, but whenever it talks about this over here, it seems to be speaking that he also wants to heal. Uh, he, he, he would want to heal also. Now that would make sense to me because um, when you see Jesus coming to the earth, as he's going through his ministry, he's telling people about salvation, but he's also healing people everywhere he goes, right? I mean, that, those are the fascinating stories. And so, so when you look at God's heart for his people, in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of verses. I'll put them on the screen. We'll go through it real quick. Uh, in Exodus, God says, I'm the Lord who heals you. Another verse, he says, blessed be the Lord, O my soul, and forget, not, forget none of his benefits. We go, what's the benefits? Who pardons all your iniquities. Okay, we get that. And who heals all your, what's that word? Diseases. Another verse, he says, by his wounds we are healed. And we saw that in Isaiah 53. By his wounds we are healed. And then in Psalm 107, 20, it says, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. So could it be that in salvation, uh, God wants to do more than just take us to heaven? Is, is there something that he might want to do in, in our lives now, especially when you consider that was God's heart for his people under the Old Testament with all of its rules, rituals, and regulations. And now that we have the spirit and grace and the Bible says better promises, would God want to at least continue doing that in our lives? Would that be something that he'd want to do? So we'll see as we travel through, but if that's the case, then the next question would be, after the empowering of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people being saved, what would be the very first thing that God would want to convey to his people that would show his heart what he wants to continue doing? Well, we saw that and began that last week in chapter 3 of Acts. So I'm going to go through chapter 3, hop, skip, and jump as we look at a couple of verses just to bring us up to speed as we jump into chapter 4. You'll recall, again, it's probably been about a year after the day of Pentecost, totally different crowd. And it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. It's going to be important for our study today. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Tuck that away. And uh, we'll talk about that. Verse 2. 
A man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, and they used to set him down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms from those who were entering into the temple. And what we shared last week is here is a man who is begging. He wants somebody to help him in his condition, but we're going to see that God wants to do more than help him in his condition. God wants to actually change his condition. So verse 6 we saw last week, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. And then we mentioned in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And uh, we talked about how it was all in the name of Jesus. He didn't pray about it. He spoke. He said, in the name of Jesus, this. And uh, we'll talk about that as we travel through this chapter and through Acts. The result Verse 8, with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So after this prayer meeting, everybody sees that this man has been healed. They all want to find out more. So they surround Peter. Peter begins to give a sermon. Down in verse 16, it says, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him perfect health in the presence of you all. So again, it's, it's in the name of Jesus, and we talked about last week, name means authority, and we'll talk about that this week. So the sermon continues, Peter continues on, and at one point he's interrupted in the sermon. We go to all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, as they were speaking to the people, and you want to pay attention to the groups that show up, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them. And uh, again, three groups come up to them. The temple guard is responsible for keeping the peace. Verse 2, it says, being greatly disturbed because, I've underlined that just to highlight it, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Now remember that Peter's Uh, Peter's going to the temple at three. The man is healed about that time. Peter's sermon goes on for some time and uh, they show up and they arrest Peter. It's already evening. So several hours have passed as, uh, as everything is just continuing. They are disturbed that Peter and James here are, are Peter and John are, are teaching people about the resurrection. Now, um, in the gospels, you have two predominant groups. You have the Pharisees, and they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in angels. They believed in the afterlife. And they believed in the whole, what you and I would call the Old Testament. You have the Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the afterlife, heaven or anything like that. They just believed that you you, you live, and then you die, and you're done. And that's why they're called, that's why they were sad, you see, is is the idea. So so they, Peter spends the night in jail, and then verse 4 it says, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So, so people are hearing the message, they're believing. Uh, in chapter 2, 3,000 believe. Now that number has grown to 5,000. 
thousand people. So over the course of the last few months and, and over the course of the last year, people are becoming believers and they're growing in their relationship with the Lord. And so, so when it says, uh, it's very specific in the original language and in, in, in English, that it says the men who believe are 5,000. This is a phenomenal growth because that does not include the women and the children. So it's, it's much, much more. Well, verse 6 Um, actually verse 5, it says, on the next day. Now keep in mind the groups of people who show up. The rulers, the elders, the scribes gather together in Jerusalem. So this next morning, this group, we're we're going to know them as the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership. And uh, they're going to gather with all of these groups. They're going to create an environment that's supposed to be very intimidating. Notice it says that they meet in Jerusalem. This religious leadership group does not meet in the temple. They always meet across the street. So they didn't meet in the temple, so now they're across the street. Verse 6, it says, And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Now what's important to know about this is that this high priest, this is the same high priest that had Jesus arrested some time ago. So that, it's the same guy, same group of guys, they're all still there. And uh, now you have this group, you've got the, the Sadducees, you're going to have the Pharisees in there, you've got the elders, the teachers, you know, everybody who's going to be part of this. And we're going to find that, again, this is just to create a very intimidating environment for the apostles. Well, verse 7, notice it says, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name? And I've underlined, in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, I love this, I've underlined that, said to the, said to the rulers, the elders, and the people. Now before we go any further, what's important to understand is in that culture, in that religious setting, they, they had a belief. And uh, there in your outline, I put verse 7, it says, when they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, saying, by what power or what name did you do this? So here the religious leadership wants to know in what name are you doing this? And there on your outline the word name is anoma, and it can mean name, but it also represents authority. Whose authority? Last week I think I mentioned that the word anoma is the Greek word that we have in our English word denomination, denomination. So if you come from a denomination, denomination, that's where that word comes from. It means a name. In their thinking, in the religious leadership, their thinking was that the authority that somebody used resided in the name of that person. Um, Not so much in the person. So they don't typically do this now, but if uh, you're old enough to watch some of the older movies, especially the old cop movies, they would always say, stop in the name of the law. Do they even say that anymore? So they don't even say that anymore. But, but they used to say that, and, and people would stop, not because there was something in the police officer, but they carried that authority. And so, so you heeded that is the idea. Well, one of the things that we mentioned last week, and go ahead and write this down, the power is released by the spoken name of Jesus. The power is released. And we're going to see this all the way through the book of Acts. Verse 8, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, elders of the people, 
You will remember back in the Gospels, Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, they're going to they're gonna pull you before the leadership. They're going to pull you before all kinds of people. But when they do, here's what you do. There in your outline from Luke 21, Jesus is speaking. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And we're going to find out when Peter speaks, they're not going to be able to contradict what he's saying or resist what he's saying. Verse 8 through 10, it says, Now Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, I want you to underline that word well. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We'll come back to that. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by, notice Peter continually emphasizes the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. He's blaming them at this point. And that's very important for our study. He's putting the blame right on them. You did this. We'll talk about that. Uh, Whom God raised from the dead by uh, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. This man stands before you in good health. So keep in mind, Peter says, whom you crucified. It's your fault. You did it. You made the decision. You're responsible. Um, You also notice that anytime Peter gives the gospel, it will always include the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He never gives the, the gospel without doing that. We also see here, he says that this man who's made well, you see him standing here. So the man who was healed is there in the middle with Peter. We don't know if he was arrested with Peter or not, but he's there in that morning. A few moments ago, we looked at the book of Acts and when it says, surely he bore our griefs. And we talked about that. And we mentioned that that word um, is, is translated as sickness. And that's the primary meaning of that word. In verse 9, it's interesting that Peter says, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. And what I did there is I put the Greek word there in parentheses. Does everybody see that? And that word in the Greek is sozo, sozo. Now that's an important word. We're going to encounter that word in verse 12. And in verse 12 of this chapter, it's going to say, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You might want to underline that. And that Greek word there is sozo. Does everybody see that? When you look at that word, sozo, and you look that up in a dictionary, here's what it says. To save, deliver, or protect, either literally or figuratively. But when it's translated into English in the King James Version, uh, it's primarily translated as to heal, preserve, save, do well, or to make or be made whole. What I find interesting is that the same word that they use that pertain to going to heaven is the same word that they also use as it relates to what God wants to do in somebody's body. Does that make sense? So in our camp, we tend to really emphasize sozo or salvation or saved as being just going to heaven. 
But let's don't forget that God might want to do something beyond that in the here and now in in our lives. So we'll keep that in mind as we travel through. Verse 11, I love that Peter always goes back to the Bible, back to Scripture in the Old Testament. And it says, he continues his sermon in front of these guys, he is the stone which was rejected by you. (laughs) Peter's laying it on. Uh, You, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And that comes from Psalm 118. And the idea is throughout the Old Testament, it talked about the Messiah, the Christ, when he would arrive, that he would be rejected by the builders. He would be the cornerstone, but he would be rejected. So these religious leaders were supposed to be the builders of the faith, but instead they're the ones who rejected that which was the chief cornerstone. So they were held responsible for that. You know, you should have you should have got it. You had the Bible, you saw it, but you rejected it. Verse 12. He says, "And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Let me read that verse again. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's good. You can say amen. Interbaptist coming out. That's good. Let's. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is not saying that Jesus is a good way. He's not saying he's a way. Peter's not saying that, you know, Jesus is the way for me, but, you know, you have your path and I have my path. Um, what Peter is saying, and you want to write this down, is that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. This is to contradict the doctrine of pluralism, which holds that, you know, you have your way, I have my way. I went to a seminary that taught that. Said, well, Muslims have their path, and Buddhists have their path, and we as Christians, we have Jesus. Well, the, the, the problem with that is that that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus would say very emphatically, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He would say, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to death and destruction. And many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So, so I want to say something, and I, and I, I don't mean to say it as a, uh, an attack, but, but you need to know this. If you're here today, and, and you go, yeah, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but you know, they don't, that's good, you know, whatever, and they have their thing, we have our thing. Then here's what you need to know. You do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You have created what the Bible calls another Jesus that you've created that, that suits you. And, and you've put your trust in that Jesus. The, the problem with that is that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And that Jesus that you've created that Jesus cannot save you, cannot save you. And so you want to make sure that you're worshiping and you invited in the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, but, but it's a very narrow gate and he is it. It's very, very narrow. That makes sense? So please don't enter into eternity with another Jesus that you've created because it's more convenient and uh, you know, just feels better. But that's not the Jesus that, that can save you. Well, We move on, and in verse 13, he says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter 
and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they were amazed, and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. I love this because, uh, write this down, the best evidence is always a changed life. You, you just, what are you going to say? He couldn't walk, now he can. It's hard, hard to get around that. Verse 15 through 17, this is one of my favorite parts. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. Now keep in mind, they'd ordered them to leave the council. They began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle I've underlined has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. The whole town knows. And I've underlined, and we cannot deny it. We can't deny it. But so that, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. This name. That's going to work. So a couple of things. First of all, um, you, you notice that in verse 16, it says, we cannot deny it. Hopefully you, you've underlined. When God does a miracle, it's undeniable. You never have to wonder, was that God? You think God did that? Yes, that was God. He couldn't walk, now he is. Nobody's confused, that was God. So God does a miracle, it's undeniable. But the part that I love about this so much is, is that in verse 15, it says they, they made the apostles leave the room. Did you see that? So they, they made them go out. And then it tells us what they said after they went out of the room. So how would we know what was said after the apostles left the room, because there was nobody in there on our team who could recount what was said. How do we know that? Well, it's, it's interesting because you have this undeniable miracle. You have a very clear message. And to a group of people, when you talk about like somebody knows the word, they knew the word. They, they knew their Bibles. So all of this happens And so apparently what's taken place, and you want to write this down, is that apparently some believed. They couldn't get around it. Later on, they would recount that back to the apostles. That's the only way that we would know. But there is one person in that group that will be um, very notable for us. If uh, if you've been around the Bible for a long time, you'll, you'll know this story there, there was a certain guy in that room who was part of the Sanhedrin. He's a complete non-believer. But later on, in a few chapters, we'll see this one who would be in that room has what we call the road to Damascus experience. They knew him as Saul before he gets saved. We will know him as Paul. He's part of the Sanhedrin. Later on in the book of Acts, I love that Paul, as he recounts this, this is what he says. There in your outline, Paul says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose, and I've underlined the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And I cast my vote against them. Paul would have been in that meeting prior to becoming a believer. What I love about this is that Peter has no idea that right now he's preaching to what he thinks is an angry mob, but he has no idea that he's preaching to a future apostle of the church who's literally going to turn the world upside down. Do you find that interesting? Good, I do too. I hope, I hope you do, because, uh, I'm gonna, I, because I do. 
So, verse 18 says, and so they summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in, in the name of Jesus. They understand something's there. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God or to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Always keep in mind that the apostles believed because they saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. They talked with him, they met with him. They can't deny that. Verse 21, when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis which to punish them on account of the people who were underlying all glorifying God for what had happened. I love that. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. Now one thing in here, we're not going to talk about it, but uh, you notice that they're all glorifying God, and we underline that. Just write this down and keep this, wherever you go in, in life in church, But when ministry is done right, it causes people to look to God, not the minister. The way that this miracle was done, everybody's glorifying God, not Peter. They're they're looking to the Lord. In any ministry, the, the idea is to point people to Jesus. When the minister begins to point people to themselves, Jesus has left the building. So always keep that in mind wherever you go. Verse 23, it says, when they had, re- when they had been released, they, they went to their own companions and reported to them all that chief priests and the elders had said to them. All that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, verse 24, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. When it says they list, lifted up their voices in one accord, the idea is that they are just in unity, is, is the idea. I have their observations of an effective prayer. I probably could have said it a little bit differently, but I just want to highlight a couple of things on how they pray and see if there's something there for us. Verse 24, it says, when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You you notice that they begin their prayer by acknowledging God's greatness and reminding themselves of who he is. And you want to write that down. And so in their writing, or in their acknowledging who he is and reminding themselves of who he is, notice what, what they say is regarding who he is there in your outline. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. The apostles believed, the, the apostles believed in, in creation. They believed that God spoke it into existence. Uh, God is not an evolutionist. You, you have a very hard time getting that from the Bible. And I would encourage you, if you're embracing evolution at all, uh, consider what the other side says, because once you do, You'll never be able to believe in evolution, but you're never taught the other side. We actually teach on that and taught on that in in the past, and we have that teaching available if you want that. But they recognize that he is the creator of everything. Another thing that we notice, verse 25, it goes on, and it says, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of of our father David, your servant said, and I'll come back to that, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Uh, the kings of the earth shook their, took their stand and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Against the Lord and against his Christ. Well, the first thing 
that we notice in there is that, you want to write this down, they are affirming Scripture as God's Word. You want to write that down. Notice I put it there on your outline. And they're praying and they say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your, of your servant, our father David. They recognized that it was God speaking through a prophet and then he wrote it down. And so that's why Christians believe that Scripture is God-breathed because that's what the Bible tells us. It's literally the Word of God. He's communicated what he wanted to say. Another thing that I find very interesting in this is that, and you want to write this down, they recognize that current events were foretold in the Scriptures. They quote Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, but verse 25 and 26, I'm going to pick it up where the font changes there on your, where it quotes the Old Testament. Why did the Gentiles rage? And as we read this, I want you to think about the crucifixion, who was involved, and what took place there. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? You know, they just thought they killed him, put him in the grave, it'd be over. The kings of the earth took their stand. Certainly we saw that. You have Herod, you got Pilate. The rulers were gathered together, religious and political, against him. And they were against the Lord and against his Christ. Against the Lord and against his Christ. They thought they were just against Jesus, but they were actually attacking God, the Father, and his, his Christ is the idea. So they recognized that this was all laid out in Scripture. It all happened just as the Bible said. So they also understood that if it happened to him, that they should expect that there would be opposition as they went forward. Jesus would say it like this on your outline. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. They also recognized, and you want to write this down, that God had a plan in all of this. Verse 27 It says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now I I love that because as we've traveled through, Peter's going, you did this, you crucified, it was you people, you did this, and then he says, but it was all part of God's plan. So you see in the book of Acts, you see this, this mystery somewhere between God's plan and man's choice. Uh, if, if man didn't have a choice, man wouldn't be held responsible. So there's a mystery in there somewhere. So they recognized that there was a, a, a mystery in there. Well, going on, what I love in verse 29, it says, now Lord, take note of their threats and grant your bondservants that your bondservants may speak your word with all, my translation says confidence. How many of your Bibles say boldness? Yeah, I like that one more. So here's what, what they prayed for in the midst of this. They prayed for boldness, not deliverance. And they knew as they prayed for boldness, that would just create more opposition. So they're praying for that to take place. As they prayed for that, verse 30, they continued in their prayer and they said, now while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There in your outline I put it, stretch, stretch out your hand and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What I love about this, and I think there's something here for us, is that they prayed for miracles through the name of Jesus. We want to see you do great things, God. 
So after Jesus goes to heaven, they acknowledge that God still wants to do miracles and God wants to use those miracles as they go forward to confirm that he's really truth. I believe, and we're going to teach on this as we go through, uh, miracles begin when you actually start believing that God wants to do them. Three out of four miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospels have the phrase, according to your faith. According to your faith. But if you've grown up in a background that says, ah, it's not for us today, we don't do that, we didn't talk about that, well, then your faith is that those things don't happen and your experience is that those things don't happen. And I could tell you miracle after miracle that, that I've seen, Cheryl and I have seen in our family and, and in life, and God's just shown up. And so we're going to be talking a great deal about that as we go through the, the book of Acts. You guys okay with that? Good, good, good. So they prayed for miracles. I love the result. Verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place that they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now a few things, very quickly as we wrap up. First of all, being filled with the Holy Spirit leads to boldness. They prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in boldness. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, that's what it looks like. You notice also, you want to write this down, that the building shook, not the people. Very important. And, and, then, and uh, then, and I don't I mean that in, in a bad way to take a shot, but here the building shakes, not, not the people. Also, in this story, no one speaks in tongues. You want to write that down. When we get a few chapters later, yes. Chapter behind, yes. But here in this environment, not on this particular day. But what did they speak? They spoke the word of God. You want to write that down. It was the message of God. The message of God. Did you find that interesting today? Miracles in the Bible, as I said a few moments ago, three out of four miracles that took place in the Gospels Jesus said, be it done to you according to your faith. Your faith has made you well. However, if you grew up and you've been part of a church background that says those things are for the past, you've been taught that God does not want to do those things. And there's a very good chance that you don't have a great or a number of incredible God stories. And so my hope as we travel through Acts and we look at what's taking place, that maybe for some of us, we expand our view of who God is and what he wants to do, not just to get us to heaven, but maybe in this life. So hopefully you find that interesting. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for unfolding your word for us, a lot to take in today. I, I pray, God, that, that you would begin to shape our minds to believe you, that you, you want us to do more and be more than people who have just really good information and, and uh but there's something that you want to do in our lives. And for some of us, Lord, we need, we need some miracles. We have a, an illness. We have a child that needs a miracle. And, and uh, the world says it's impossible, but we read your book and we see that, that you love to step in. And so, Father, as we go forward, we pray that you would teach us how to believe you and trust you. Lord, maybe not just to do better in our condition, but maybe to actually change our condition as we go forward in such a way that people would look on and they would say, it's undeniable God has done something here. 
Father, thank you for this congregation. I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. See you next week.